Now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. So as uh, most of y'all here know, we at the parish, several of us spent the beginning of this past Lent on pilgrimage in the Holy Land. One of the places that we visited was the site believed to be the location of today's gospel passage, Cana in Galilee. And while we were there, uh, there were a few memorable things that happened that I'd like to share this morning. So first, and this is probably one of the, one of the biggest things as far as today's passage goes, we got to see some first century stone water jars like the kind that are mentioned in today's gospel. Now, before this visit to Cana in Galilee, I always kind of pictured very large terracotta pottery, the kind that we see all over the place in this part of, this part of the U.S., that kind of orangish terracotta pottery that you can buy at HEB. Well, what they actually were, at least the way that we saw them in, at, uh, in Cana of Galilee on our trip, are less terracotta pottery and more large boulders that had been carved out to hold water. So these things were about five or six feet high, about uh, two, three feet in diameter, and the walls of these stone jars were about as thick as the opening to hold the water. These were absolutely huge. And needless to say, moving the jars would be quite a chore indeed. Second, Bishop Scott had the opportunity to officiate over the renewal of wedding vows for two of the couples that were with us on pilgrimage, including our own Steve and Debbie McCullough. Um, we did that actually down in the chamber where the stone water jars are. I'm not sure we were supposed to do that, but uh, there was a scheduling conflict with the chapel. Um, the, the nuns who uh, run the site, um, I was in my cassock, so they assumed I was in charge. And so they did all the business with me regarding the chapel, but there was a scheduling issue, so we did it down below anyway. And then finally, while we were there, we purchased a few bottles of wine from Cana. Um, one of those bottles, the clergy of our archdeaconry, we used when we were on a retreat at Mo Ranch this past autumn. So as you can imagine, today's passage has come alive for me in a way that was not possible previously. So I would encourage any of you who are able to join us next time we go on, on this pilgrimage. It's, it's very um, informative. Um, we're probably going to do this in 2022 or 2023, and you will see why the Holy Land has sometimes been called the fifth gospel. So now let's take a look at today's gospel passage. We're going to focus on two aspects of the story. We're going to focus on the idea that this is Jesus' first sign, first miracle in John's gospel. And then um, secondly, we're going to focus on the response from the apostles, from the disciples, and from the Blessed Virgin Mary that we see here. So please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 2, beginning at the first verse, John 2, 1. Uh, you can find this in your prayer book on page 113 or in your Black Pew Bibles on page 834. Uh, page 834 in your Pew Bibles, page 113 in the prayer book, John 2, beginning at the first verse. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. 
His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw out some and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and the disciples believed in him. So unlike the synoptic gospels, that is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, St. John portrays very few miracles in his rendering. In fact, he only gives us seven, six of which are specifically called signs in the text, and we usually lump that seventh in with them. All of these miracles, all of these seven signs happen in the first half of the gospel, which has led some scholars to call John 2 through 12 the book of the, the book of the signs, and then the rest of his gospel, the book of glory. And the rest of the gospel all happens during Holy Week. So the first part of his ministry, the book of signs, the second part, the book of glory. Here are the seven signs in John's gospel. You may recall most of these stories. We have the turning of water into wine in today's gospel passage, John chapter 2. We have the healing of the official's son in Capernaum in John chapter 4. We have the healing of the paralytic at Bethesda in John chapter 5. The feeding of the 5,000 in John chapter 6, which does come up later on in our lectionary. Walking on water later on in John chapter 6. Then we have the healing of the man born blind in John 9. And finally, the raising of Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11. So for St. John, the signs are special miracles that point to Jesus' identity as the divine Logos, the the, the word made flesh, the the word of God made manifest, as we sang in our our, uh, hymn this morning. As we read, today's miracle is the first of Jesus' signs. Now, in some ways, what happens is that this sign sets the tone for Jesus' ministry and his mission as St. John portrays it in his gospel. So first of all, what this does is that it demonstrates Jesus' divinity with a powerful act of creation. At the concluding verse of our passage, it says, with this powerful act, Jesus manifested his glory. And what an extravagant act it is. Six stone water jars with 20 or 30 gallons, that's the equivalent of 600 to 900 bottles of wine. 600 to 900 bottles of wine. Even if the entire village came to this wedding feast, even if they invited all their friends from the surrounding villages, they would not be able to finish 600 to 900 bottles of wine at one wedding feast, especially since they were already drinking before this. And probably they wouldn't have been able to finish that much wine in a single year. I know some of y'all really like wine, but even you guys would not be able to. No, I'm just kidding. This is a lot 
of wine. This is extravagant. When the master of the feast calls the bridegroom over and says, everybody else serves the good wine first and then the bad wine after people are getting drunk, but you did it the other way around, that's not a compliment to the, ma- to the bridegroom. He's basically saying to the bridegroom, what are you thinking? This was the stupid way to do it. This was critical. <laughs> Martin Bucer, one of the German reformers, and, and Bucer helped Archbishop Cranmer uh, in the development of the first book of Common Prayer. He points out that some Christians of his day, and I would add, and in our day as well, probably would have rebuked or even excommunicated our Lord over such extravagance, lest it lead to drunkenness. (laughs) If you search the scriptures, you never find any other prophet from the Old Testament or even in later Jewish stories performing such a major miracle as this. The sign and the glory also paint a picture of the nature of Jesus' ministry. Jesus' ministry was a ministry of God's grace. Whenever you read John's gospel, remember that the evangelist is fond of incorporating multiple meanings into the text. The surface story is rarely the entire point in John's gospel. The main facts, just kind of the bare, the bare basics of the story, were already pretty well known in the Christian community by the time John was writing, because Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospels had been circulating for 20 or 30 years by then. St. Clement of Alexandria kind of sums up the approach really well. He says, last of all, John, perceiving that the external facts had been made plain, by which he means in the other canonical gospels, John composed a spiritual gospel. In other words, there are always deeper spiritual truths in the stories of John's gospel. In this case, the significance is that the first sign is at a wedding. Jesus' mission was to win and woo his bride, the church. He was laying the foundation, laying a preparation for the great marriage supper of the Lamb that we read about at the end of Revelation and that that Jesus talks about in some of his parables. And also note the significance of the wine. Wine is not a necessity in life. Believe me, it's not a necessity. (laughs) It seems like it sometimes, but it's not. Wine is a luxury. What this points out is that Jesus came to give us life and life to the abundance, the abundant life, life to the fullest. He came to give us abundant life. The miracle of the wine at Cana is a picture of that abundant life that Jesus tells us he came to give us. Wine, you see, is a symbol of fellowship and a symbol of joy uh, in the scriptures, in in the ancient world. And what we see in this miracle is God's grace poured out in extravagant joy. Remember, the text says that the jars were filled to the brim. The Christian life is one of abundant joy as well as a life of holiness. Holiness and joy are not antithetical concepts. The one does not preclude the other. You can have holiness and joy. We don't have to look like caricatures of the Puritans. (laughs) This joy, godly Christian joy, does include appropriate times of celebration and feasting such as at this wedding feast. 
But also our joy as Christian extends even to times of difficulty and suffering. If you've been following along in our prayer book's daily office lectionary, uh, just in in morning prayer over the last couple of days, we began the epistle of St. Paul to the Philippians. Philippians is one of those epistles that St. Paul writes from prison. He's 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 waiting trial, possibly waiting execution as far as he knows. Yet the major themes of Philippians are contentment and joy, and St. Paul roots both of that in thanksgiving. Notice here that the text also speaks of the water jars being used for the Jewish rites of purification. That's verse 6. It's important to note that these are not rites from the Old Testament ceremonial law. The Old Testament washings were were basically of two sorts. We either had the washings related to the temple or the washings related to ritual impurity. That's what we find in in, in God's law. Now, neither of those would have taken place within the context of a private house using stone jars, no matter how big those jars are. The temple washings would have taken place, of course, at the temple. Uh, If you know your, your, your Holy Land geography, Galilee's way up here, The temples in Judea way down here. Um, We're not going to talk, we're not going to be doing things related to Oklahoma and Texas. You know, that's the kind of thing going on here, right? And when it comes to those issues of ritual impurity, so that's, um, say you came in contact with a corpse or various bodily discharges. Let's not get into details on that. (laughs) Scripture does that for us. Um, Those would have been dealt with in the context of running water, living water, usually in the synagogue by Jesus' day. The synagogues were usually built up around a spring for the sake of those purification, or they would divert the spring to go into the synagogue so that there would be living water for those purification washings. Instead, what we have here are the kinds of purification rites that are extra-biblical tradition. These are things that the Pharisees imported into the Old Testament religion. It's the kind of thing that the Pharisees criticized the disciples for when they complained to Jesus that his followers were eating without washing their hands. That's what's going on with these kinds of purifications. So with that in mind, you can see the contrast between the joy of the gospel versus the burden of legalism. The Pharisees, like all legalists, piled extra laws on top of God's law. And their motivation for that wasn't just because they wanted to control people. That's not what they do. That's, that's our very cynical, modern way of looking at it. What they were trying to do was protect God's law from being broken. So you put laws on top, because maybe you're going to break those ones, but then you won't break God's law, right? They're trying to protect God's law from the people, as if the word of God needs us to defend it. I don't remember who it was. Some, some evangelist or reformer, I forget, um, said, you know, that, that God's word is like a lion. You don't have to fight for it. Just let it loose. <laughs> we often look at the, at the, at the uh, Pharisees kind of with amazement that they would do something like this. But remember that legalism is always a tendency within our hearts. We always have this human tendency to reduce the covenant relationship with our creator down to a list of do's and don'ts. And oftentimes we're doing that because we have a good desire to promote holiness. 
But legalism is not the way of the gospel. The joyful wine of the gospel gives us freedom within our holiness, freedom within our obedience. We don't bind the conscience where God's law has not bound it. Now, traditions are fine, traditions are good, but they're not God's law, right? And we need to make sure that we we make a distinction because here's how it goes. When we're focused on legalism, it takes our focus off of God and puts it on ourselves. But when we have, when when we focus on God's grace, on what Jesus has done, then we're looking at what he has done for us, not what we think we can do for God. And what ends up happening is that the result of that freedom in the gospel, the result of that joy within holiness, leads to us being more obedient and holy in spite of ourselves. Give it, some, give, give it a try. That's the way it works. Sometimes it takes a while, but that's the way it works. Now, finally, let's take a look at our Lord's mother and, and, and at the disciples. It's important to remember that the Blessed Virgin Mary is often a type of the church, especially in John's writings. So we have, for example, Revelation chapter 12, where she is shown very explicitly to be the mother of all of Jesus' brethren who's, who are persecuted and she herself is being persecuted. This is a very clear symbol of the church, a very clear symbol of, of true Israel. And then we have St. John's depiction of the crucifixion where she's entrusted into the care of St. John. And this can be read as a symbol of the church being entrusted into the care of the apostles when Jesus ascends to his father. And even in her very role as the mother of our Lord, the one who bore Jesus into the world, she's a type of the church who brings the Lord to the rest of the world. We bear the Lord into this fallen world. So in today's passage, what we see is that she can be an example and a stand-in for all of the faithful. Notice that she goes to Jesus on behalf of the groom when there's a problem. She intercedes with the Lord on behalf of the wedding party. We are also called to that ministry of intercession on behalf of our brethren when we go to the Lord in prayer. Certainly pray for yourself. You should do that. Don't, don't have this false humility that says, I can't pray for me. Yes, you can pray for you. You should pray for you. But don't neglect to pray for your brothers as well. That's why we have so much we in the prayer book. That's why it's the book of common prayer. We pray as a body and we pray for the body. Also notice her words to the servants. Do whatever he tells you. That's verse, verse five. That's the cry of the church to all the faithful. Do whatever Jesus tells you. Follow Jesus. Obey his word. Listen to him. And most especially, believe in him. And then that's what we see the disciples doing. The end result of this first sign we find in the last sentence of our passage. And the disciples believed in him. So it is for us. When we see Jesus working through his word. When we see Jesus working through the sacraments. Or even through the ministry of his people our belief in him should be strengthened. So this year we have a very short epiphany tide. We were talking about that in the vesting room just uh, before service. Next week is already pre-Lent. Next week is Septuagesima. We're going to begin to move toward our season of fasting and repentance. 
But as we do so, remember the joys that we've experienced in Christmastide and in Epiphany, even in a pandemic year. Remember the joys of the incarnation of Christ, of God made flesh in our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember the joys of his manifestation to the world that we celebrated Epiphany, that we've been singing about in our hymns. Remember those joys of our Lord's baptism and of our baptisms that we spoke about at the first service last week. And remember the wine of the gospel from this week. May that, yield, may that wine yield belief, holiness, and joy for all of us. And we say this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Remember the words of our Lord Jesus, how he said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Mm-hmm.